The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio. I'm so glad that you could all join us, and I'm also glad that our guests could join us today because we're going to be talking about some issues that are very eye-opening, very data-driven, uh, and something that a lot of us know intuitively, but Dr. Martinson has put numbers to it. And what we know intuitively is that our economy and our standard of living is in large part uh, based on finite resources, natural resources that by their very nature are not renewable. He's put some numbers to that issue to help us understand what's going on and what we can reasonably predict to happen in the next 20 years in terms of our uh, availability and the economy as it's based upon these finite resources. And Hopefully, we'll get to the point where we can ask him some questions about, well, what do we do now, Dr. Martinson? Uh, we're, I'm very, very happy to welcome Dr. Chris Martinson, author of a new book called The Crash Course, The Unsustainable Future of Our Economy, Energy, and the Environment. And uh, I'm glad that you could join us, Chris. It's great to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I have to admit that your book has been keeping me up at night, literally not just from reading it, but thinking about it the last uh, couple of weeks since I got it. And uh, it's a really, really eye-opening and stark look at the predicament. And I'm going to use that word on purpose because you made the point that we're in a predicament. It's not a problem. It's a predicament in which we find ourselves in this point in human history. And it's pretty unparalleled. And you make the point that to predict the future based on the past may not work this time. In some cases, we say if we know history, we're not destined to repeat it. But in this case, we're looking at something brand new in terms of our future. And before we dive into the details that you discuss in the book, what I'd like to do is have you talk about your life before you started studying the concepts that you outline in the crash course so that we can get a better understanding of your background and perspective. So won't you share that with our listeners, please? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, you know, I'm sorry the book has been keeping you up at night, or at least the, the concepts in there. My intent is, is to, uh, is to have a good discussion, and, and, uh, so let's set the stage for that. My before story. Uh, I am trained as a scientist. I, I have a PhD in um, pathology, neurotoxicology, and I was doing science for a while, which, which is important to know because I, I love data, and I let data tell me stories, and I'm trained in that. And then I went off and, and got an MBA and, and spent um, nearly 10 years in the corporate world doing everything you're supposed to do, living the American dream, and worked my way up the, the corporate ladder and ended up as a vice president of a fairly large company called SAIC. And um, uh, that was, you know, the classic American dream lifestyle, big house on the water, Connecticut, doing all of that. And uh, slowly it started to dawn on me that, that the life I was leading and living into at that point um, really didn't have quite the future I'd, I'd been led to 
believe or expect. So um, that's kind of the before story. It's classic American, work hard, study hard, um, play hard kind of a life. And, and that was true for me all the way up until um, 2003. I started to lose connection with that thread, and by 2005 I'd fully disconnected. Well, and you know, I think it's important for our listeners to know that because sometimes we have folks on the show who are lifelong environmentalists or lifelong environmental scientists, and to know that you've come from the life that many of us lead um, is very important because that perspective can't be lost on us when when we're going through some of the ideas and concepts that we're going to discuss today. Knowing that you are kind of one of us, <laughs> or at least started that way, um, is is helpful to know. Now, at what point, and and what kind of caused the concepts in, that you describe in the book to sort of start to coalesce for you? At what point did you realize, hey, something is amiss here and I need to explore a little bit more about what's going on with our economy and the environment and energy and this nexus between the three? <laughs> Jill, I, I wish I could tell you I, I, I had some parting of the clouds and a shaft of golden sunshine came down and told me what to do, but uh, it was self-interest. In 2001, and two, I, my, my portfolio, like everybody's, my savings were getting eviscerated, and I grew increasingly uncomfortable with what my broker was telling me, stocks for the long haul, and, you know, just, just ride out the storm, and let's, now's a good time to buy. It was never a good time to sell. And I, I just started digging at our economic story. That was my first starting point. And it didn't take long before I'd, I'd peeled up this corner of the economic rug and scared myself silly. At that time, in 2001 and two, very quaint uh, deficits seemed scary to me, and, and uh, the unfunded, and unfunded entitlement programs, excuse me, those right. as well, I looked at it and I said, this is unsustainable. I mean, just economically, there are things here in my country alone, the United States, that just don't square up, and, and I started connecting other ideas to those as well, and the shocker in the economic story for me was discovering how money is made in our mm-hmm. society. It, it is just literally printed into existence. And for myself, money had always been a very tangible substance. You work for it, you have it, or you don't. And you know that sort of defines your, your reality around money. And I discovered that at the higher levels, when we're talking about the big banks and our central bank, the Federal Reserve, mm-hmm. it's just literally manufactured in unlimited quantities out of thin air. And I said, well, maybe it's important to observe how much of that's being printed out of thin air. Uh, and, and because it's, it's history says every time countries have gotten reckless with that act, it's destroyed their currency. That seems like a rather profound thing to, to uh, uh, an individual who cares about their future. So I looked at that and I said, hmm, something occurred to me that what our money system requires, though, because we don't just, just print it out of thin air. We do that and then we loan it to ourselves. When you loan your own money to yourself, what you're doing is you have a principal component and an interest component you have to pay back without going into all the details which are on my website, in the book you mentioned, what we have is a money system that has to grow forever or it becomes very unhappy. And That's when right. I looked at that, I said, well, what, what's required for growth? That led me to the energy story because no economy grows without energy. You have That's to have right. energy. You could have all the, all the raw resources in the world, but without energy as one of those, you still can't do anything. So... I looked at the energy story, and there was this whole gigantic, right out of, uh, like, not part of our national discussion um, topic of peak oil, which turns out the whole world was actually kind of talking about. It's just not my country was really up the curve yet. And, and mm-hmm. that's a concept which says we simply are going to hit a point someday where we can't get more oil out of the ground. We'll still get plenty, 
maybe enough, but not more. And that's important because if you want to have economic growth, history says you need more oil, not the same amount, certainly not less. And um, uh, that's the future we're staring into. So I said, well, wait a minute. If I have an economy that's based on a money system that has to grow or it threatens to fall apart and threatens catastrophe, but it's going to run into an energy system that can't grow, I put just those two pieces together. I said, I think I see a, a predicament here. We, we have the inability to grow coupled to this um, need to grow, and, and one of those two things is going to lose, and I thought it might be the economy. In fact, I thought it might be our debt markets. Um, and so that led me as early as 2005 and six to make very public calls that we were facing a housing bubble and there was going to be a great credit market dislocation or crisis at some point, and that ultimately we're risking a gigantic currency crisis worldwide, but also for the United States. And what do you know? Yada, yada, yada. It happened. But and, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing that's amazing is that, you know, it, a lot of us, and I'm, I'm guilty of this as well, I really didn't wake up to some of these issues until too big to fail became the headline. And then I began to pay attention, you know, after the fact and to understand how the economy worked, um, it, especially at that level, at that macro level, what's happening between the Fed and banks. And um, a lot of Americans still don't understand th- that very important linear equation between energy and the economy and economic growth, but we're going to get into that in a little bit. You know, before we dive right into the energy piece, which is very, very critical, I want to talk about some of the other environmental issues that you bring up in the book. And I'd really, I'd like to talk about minerals because this is something that, you know, I read Thomson Reuters every morning. I have it on my app, on my iPhone, and you can't look at that on any given day without seeing information about copper, aluminum, gold, silver, all these other minerals um, and, and how they're tied to the economy. But if you could bring it down to kitchen table talk, you know, for the everyday American, talk to us about the depletion of minerals, um, not just in the U.S., but worldwide, and explain this phenomenon about the you know how how we're beginning to import minerals and what impact that could have on the economy. Well, when we say the word economy, often it, it gets confused in this mumbo jumbo that that we read about. You know, you read somebody like Paul Krugman, and all of a sudden he's talking about Taylor rules and mathematical formulas, and it's all very complex. But in fact, it's very simple. An economy is simply the movement of goods and services. It's people having their needs and wants met. And all of those goods and services, when you dig down far enough, and often you don't have to go too far, come from the earth. They come from mineral and energy resources that we extract from the earth. And that's all well and good, except we might want to ask, particularly if we care about things like, oh, if our economy is going to keep growing, or if we have sustainability anywhere baked into our idea that we'd like to pass on a a better or equal future to our children, grandchildren, great-great-great-grandchildren, There's an interesting story here, which is that in just 150 years of an industrial economy where we're chasing after, you mentioned copper, so let's talk about copper for a second. Well, where do we get copper? Well, we get it out of the ground. When we first started going after copper, there were actual nuggets, like purified copper in a vein. You could go, and there it was, and you could pull it out, and it was copper. And then we started going after ore grades, but we're humans, right? So we're smart, so we went after the best ore grades first. You know, if you owned a property and there was a big, bright, blue-green band of copper ore, you went after that. That'd be a nice, maybe a 10% ore grade. 
And today, all the best copper finds out there, uh, mines that are being opened up, have ore grades of like 0.2% or less. And, and to put that in context, if we had a 10% ore grade, well, that means we'd take 10 pounds of this ore out, 10 pounds, and we would refine it and smelt it, and we'd end up with one pound of copper, right? right. 10% gives you 10 to 1, right? Well, at 0.2%, what you need is you need 500 pounds of this ore body, and, uh, which you'll take to smelt and refine, and you'll get that same one pound out. So instead of thinking whether that makes economic sense, what, what I'm trying to do in my work is, is, is open it up and look at this through a slightly different lens and ask the question, well, how much energy did it take to go from 10 pounds of ore to one pound of copper compared to going from 500 pounds to one? And what we find is that we are chasing increasingly dilute, uh, dispersed, uh, deeper, more distant, uh, all of these Ds sort of apply to what we're, what we're going after with our minerals. And, and we're at a point in history where we can look into the future just 10 or 20 years and see that some critical resources, uh, mineral resources, are going to be completely depleted, completely gone, just within 10 or 20 years. Now, maybe we'll find new ones and maybe we'll substitute them with other things, but here we are in this story where, you know, 100 years ago, the world seemed boundless and limitless, yeah. and there were, we could cross horizons and find whole new resources. Today, it's pretty well mapped out, and that is going to require us to adjust to a future where reduce, reuse, recycle are not just a, a green phrase. They're operating imperatives um, because we yeah. have to. We're facing an extraordinary period of adjustment, and my concern and the reason I do my work and write the book is because I don't think we're talking about it yet. We're operating as if... That future I described where there are limited and limiting amounts of resources doesn't exist. We're operating as if we can just continually count on 2 3 4% more stuff coming out of the ground next year compared to this year and for every year in the future. And that's just not true anymore. And, and we've already, we're running up against that right now. It has enormous implications for how our economy is going to fail to grow and what that will mean for our credit markets, for our money system, our political institutions, uh, geopolitics. It touches everything. It's huge. Well, let's, let's talk about a few of those minerals and what they do for us. I mean, talk to us. Um, you know, some people in manufacturing probably already understand what we use all these minerals for. But for everyday people, you know, uh, a copper shortage how does that affect me or you know uh you know a gold shortage or if you know we can't get thorium what does that mean to our day-to-day -day lives if there's either a shortage or it becomes too expensive to mine it out deeply out of the ground uh at these lower uh, purity rates and distill the the useful metal out of it and minerals out of it what does that mean to everyday Americans how could our lives be impacted well, you know, to stick to copper for just a second, well, the way we deal with shortages in the world is is through price. So, just ten years ago, copper was a dollar a pound, and now it's three fifty a pound. So, it's gone through a, a fairly extraordinary hike. Every house has about four hundred pounds of copper in it because of wiring and piping and things. Every car has about forty pounds of copper in it, and so. You know, when we read the newspapers, crack them open, they say, oh, you know, housing starts have ticked up again. Yay, we just need more houses built. What we're really saying is we need more copper mined, because that's, that's what we're really saying in that story as well. Um, and, and so 
in some cases, you know, we'll find ways to either use less copper or use aluminum instead. There's certain parts of that story, but then there are other parts of the story where we have whole, I see people have giant hopes pinned on the future based on critical resources. So here's an example. Uh, there's this glorious company in uh, Los Angeles. They can actually print solar panels, like with an HP printer, you know, practically, and, and mm-hmm. they print this thin film solar, and it just comes right out, and they can print whole megawatts per day, and, and people say, look, that's how we'll solve the solar issue, right there. They say, well, that's, that's good, except that uses a gallium, indium arsenide, gallium. Where do we get that from? Oh, well, uh, there's actually only one or two operating mines in the whole world, and they're mm-hmm. almost depleted. Otherwise, we get gallium from scrubbing the insides of smokestacks of coal uh, plants, coal electricity plants, and, uh, and we scrub the ash off the inside and smelt that down, and there's a little gallium in that. But the point of the story is that if we suddenly said, oh, we love this technology, we're going to print you know, 600 gigawatts of these things, there wouldn't be enough gallium to do it. It doesn't exist. And if we said, oh, we want to go to all electric cars, and they're all going to have lithium polymer ion batteries like the Prius, that's what we're going to do. We don't have enough lithium right now to do that. Even if we wanted to, it doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are lots of constraints starting to show up, and so the concern I have is people often have a, a vision of a technology future where we are applying these new technological solutions to our predicament in order to imagine that we're going to have this uninterrupted future of, of betterness. And that could be true, but in many cases, there's uh, the devil's in the details, and a lot of those hopes are depending on resources that just don't pencil out. They aren't there right now. Mm-hmm. There's just not enough of them. And, you know, we mentioned this a little bit earlier, the reduce, reuse, recycle mantra that we've all grown up with. You know, a lot of that, uh, you know, th- there are a lot of not just minerals, but metals and things like that that are in finite supply in terms of the or- Earth's ability to provide it. And I know that a lot of my waste management friends are thinking, well, let's just recycle, you know. Why is that not the silver bullet solution to replenishing our stocks of some of these these precious metals and minerals out there? Well, it, it absolutely should be a cornerstone of our strategy to buy ourselves more time, and it makes a lot of energetic sense. It makes environmental sense. It can make uh, political national security sense. There's a lot of reasons we should do that. In many cases, though, um, we're talking about things that uh, cannot be recycled. They're lost at sort of the molecular level. So when, a, when an iron bridge rusts away, there's really no way to recover that, that iron again um, economically. When we take phosphorus, which is a rapidly depleting uh, essential mineral that we use for uh, fertilizer purposes, that's mined out, crushed down, put on a field in Iowa, grown, taken up by the corn, processed, shipped to market, and to put it delicately, flushed into the ocean, never to be economically seen again. And so there, there, there are waste streams that we can look at where we're depleting critical mineral resources that are non-renewable, that, that is in any possible time. They took millions, if not billions of years to concentrate into these pockets that we're going to mine out in about 100, 150 years. And, and so we should look at and we should be having that discussion about what are these critical mineral resources like phosphorus. There's no replacement for that. Plants need phosphorus. We're not going to feed them copper instead or something else. They need phosphorus. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that would be something we should say, huh, how long is that going to last? Where does it come from? Where does it go? Can we close that loop? Is there a way to recover this? 
these are all great conversations to have, A, because we have to have them, and B, they represent jobs and opportunities and new processes that have to be developed, and we'll need our best, brightest, creative young minds thinking these things through because they're fairly complex how we're going to approach these things. Uh, but we're not even dealing with it yet. And um, my worry is that as a culture, we have a tendency to sort of deal with things when they finally erupt. And some mm-hmm. of these things, when they erupt, it may be too late to really do anything clever or awesome. Like, like you know, Greece rated, waited to deal with its... Um, economic crisis, its deficit crisis, uh, until the bond markets forced it upon them. And now they're scrambling, and they have a fairly poor set of options before them. And, and if they'd started to deal with this as math, you know, it's just, Greece had a math problem 10, 15 years ago. Everybody could see it coming. Yeah. I, my, my point is waiting until the crisis forces you to change gives you a really lesser array of of options to choose from. They're not ideal. Um, well, crisis so, management, you know, is is great for certain things that can't be foreseen. But when you're talking about things that can be foreseen, I mean, you've put some very reasonable data together in your book. Um, it's just, for lack of a better word, immature and sophomoric not to deal with these problems ahead of time. And and I think that that's the, the great tragedy. Now, you were talking about plants needing phosphorus, so I'd like to shift a little bit to soil. Um, you started your chapter on soil with uh, an anecdote that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks because you were talking about a place that is where I live, and that's Northern California. And you were talking about... Um, you know, <laughs> a housing situation that, uh, you know, we see all the time. California has been building houses and, uh, wherever we could. We, our population has grown rapidly and we've been trying to put roofs over everybody, over everybody's head. And I personally have thought about some of the environmental consequences of that, you know, water and, and other things like that. But you brought up something I had never even considered, I am ashamed to say, and that's building houses on top of perfectly good farmland. And I'd like for you to talk about that issue with our listeners. Well, building on top of farmland makes a lot of economic sense. It's flat, it's level, it's easy to get to. There's often roads right to it. It seems like a perfectly great place to put a house. Um, but what we're really doing, and, and that place in Northern California you're mentioning, to me that was a, 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 a crime scene because it was the best soil I'd, I'd seen in, in, you know, in a long time. It was gorgeous, beautiful farmland, rich, deep loam. And we are rapidly losing our soil, in part in a very visible way, it, like you saw there with, uh, or I saw there with the houses being built right on top of it. Uh, you know, that soil is then lost uh, it, to farming. We're also losing it in slightly less visible ways with the ways in which we farm. You know, where we till everything up. Uh, the, the Dust Bowl was actually uh, the greatest environmental disaster in our country's history, far surpassing uh, anything else that's happened uh, since. And, you know, that, that represented the loss of hundreds of billions of tons of topsoil that just blew away because what we did was we took prairie and we turned it upside down and exposed, you know, uh, the, the soil to the winds and away it went. And that happens when it rains, and we can see that in the dead zones that exist in the ocean around the mouths of all the major rivers, particularly down in the Gulf of Mexico where the uh, uh, Mississippi River empties in. And, and that's really telling us that what's happening is our nutrients and our soil is washing away out to sea. And it's, it's absolutely undeniably true that in most industrial farming practice communities in the world, soil is being lost at a far faster rate than it's being created. It takes 
you know, a century to create an inch of soil in, in many locations, and it, you can lose that in a single growing season. Um, so, so we have a, a situation where we're, we're squandering our soil uh, resources. And I also make another distinction in the book, which is that there's a difference between soil and dirt. You know, make think that of dirt. distinction for us, yeah. Yeah, soil is this rich, vibrant uh, creation where, where I heard one biologist describe it. He said, uh, picking up a handful of, of rich soil, and he said, this is the poor man's rainforest. Like, if you get a <laughs> microscope and go in there, it's, it's an incredibly vibrant community of, of microbes and things going on in there. Dirt is a, a sterile, stripped-down, it's almost like styrofoam or, or just gravel. I mean, it's, it's just something that, that plants can thread their roots through, but there's no uh, nutrients left in it. There's no organic matter left in it. And the way we keep plants alive in that situation is we feed them the vital nutrients, just like with uh, hydroponics. You know, that's literally taking plants, rooting them into gravel or pure water, and then just making sure the water has plenty of nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium in it and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're actually creating very sterile uh, dirt piles for in many of our, our communities, which means as long as we can keep those fossil fuel-based fertilizers flowing to those, to those uh, dirt zones, we'll keep growing on them. Uh, as soon as we can't supply those vital nutrients, those areas are no longer useful uh, for growing anymore because they, they are stripped clean. They've been mined for their mineral resources. And well, and you also talk about the impact that that has on the the food that we're growing on it in terms of its nutritional content. Talk a little bit about that. Well, that's been well characterized over the decades. I think they first started testing in the 50s, and they would take a piece of broccoli and they say, well, what's in here? You know, so much calcium, so many milligrams of magnesium, trace amounts of selenium, whatever all the, the elements are that, that you would find that a plant has taken up. And when we harvest those, those actually, it's like the plant has, has pulled those pieces up, all those valuable elements up into itself and used it for life. We've taken those off and off they go to market, and that's great because, you know, we, we need those nutrients ourselves. The difficulty is if those things aren't returned somehow, if those aren't, the nutrients aren't recycled back onto that same plot of land, eventually they just go down and down and down. So over time, uh, they've been tracking what is the nutrient uh, value, how much protein, how much calcium, magnesium, all of these basic things that we measure in terms of food nutrition, how much is in our food, in grains, vegetables, all kinds of things that are farmed. And it's just been declining over time. So our, our, the nutritive value of many of our foods is, has been you know, just skinnying down as, as we go forward. And, um, uh, you know, I don't know if it's connected or not, but on the back side of that, we find people, you know, getting heavier and heavier. And one possible explanation for that, in my mind, is, is we're eating, but we're not, we're not being fed in some cases. Interesting. You know, a lot of people don't realize the impact that fossil fuels have on food production. I mean, people don't think about, you know, oil being a part of our food production or uh, some of these other fossil fuels that it takes to actually feed the world. Talk about the impact and, and the need for fossil fuels in modern agriculture. Oh, it's, it couldn't be more direct and, and obvious. I was just at an 11,000-acre farm in, in Maryland about three weeks ago and got a nice tour. And we went to the center of the operation, so you know, the, the buildings are all there and all the, all the big machinery is there, and stepped out of this van, and immediately to my right were two 10,000-gallon tanks of diesel that are filled five or six times each season, uh, the next building over had uh, hard fertilizer, which was um, the phosphorus and the potassium all stacked up, all of which required uh, fossil fuels to mine and, and to bring their, 
Next were these ammonia tanks, which are all made out of ammonia, made out of uh, natural gas for the most part. So that's again a fossil fuel in those huge tanks. And the next building was the herbicides and the pesticides, uh, all made from fossil fuels. And, and that's it. That oh, there was a building with seeds in it. So uh, out, of, out of all of that, only the seeds, I guess, weren't um, you know fully 100% directly a, a product of fossil fuels, but everything else in that story is. And that's modern farming right now. So when we add it all up and we say, well, how many calories of oil were used to deliver a calorie from that farm? So this farm uh, grew corn. What we would discover is that for every calorie of corn that came off of that uh, farm and made it to my plate, there would be around 10 calories of fossil fuels embedded in that, hidden in the background somewhere Hmm. in that story. And so that means that when I'm eating a calorie of corn, I'm really eating oil. I'm really eating 10 calories of oil. And, you know, it's gotten so mechanized and so embedded. What oil does for us is it, is it does work. And it does so much work in this story that farming is now, I think, less than 2% of all jobs are even remotely associated with farming at this point. It's such a small part of the work uh, environment of our country that in the last census that they took, farming wasn't listed is an occupation. Oh, that's so weird. Uh, I mean, that used to be the occupation of the United States. I mean, we were such an agrarian uh, community and uh, as a whole. And and I think one of the things that, before we take a quick break, I want all of our listeners to make this connection is that fossil fuels, remember, those are finite resources. Uh, there's not an unlimited supply of them. They're essentially non-renewable because it takes so long to create a fossil fuel, and they're so embedded into our modern agricultural process, which allows us to get these huge yields from the acreage that we have dedicated to farmland. Um, and I think I want you to think about over the commercial break, what happens when we have fewer fossil fuels to dedicate to modern agriculture? What happens to our food supply? We're going to take a quick break, ruminate on that for a moment, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Dr. Chris Martinson, so don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to change your relationships, your business, your body, and your life? You'll want to tune in to Transformation Talk Radio with host Tony Litster. It's an inspiring hour of conversation, special guests, and wisdom that has made Tony an expert with personal life experience. His down-to-earth style will give you the keys to unlock your greatest potential. Listen for Transformation Talk Radio live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Listening can truly change your life. Come back to your senses. Imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense. Host Leah Brenda Smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life. It's all about how you respond to your thoughts. A little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life. Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? 
Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Tolvanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Tolvanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us today, our guest today is Dr. Chris Martinson, author of a book that I highly recommend. It's called The Crash Course, The Unsustainable Future of Our Economy, Energy, and the Environment. Now, I've represented it, I think, accurately as a stark and uh, eyes-wide-open, data-driven look at uh, the reality that we are coming up against some limits in terms of what our Earth can provide and the natural resources that are so critical to the economic growth that we keep uh, hearing about every day on cable news or wherever you get your news. Everybody's talking about um, how important it is for our economy to keep growing and the relationship between those finite resources that we're mining from the earth um, and economic growth. Dr. Martinson has put together a very um, adult, very mature, very eyes wide open look at what we're facing in terms of the limits that our earth can provide and what we need to be doing in order to prepare for that eventuality. It's not scary. Um, it's something that grown-ups have to do every day. We look at our realities in terms of our family budget and what we can afford and what we can't and make adjustments as we go. Um, and this is the same thing. This is our earth's budget of the environmental resources that we depend upon and what we need to be doing, not in a panic-driven way, but in a very mature, adult-like way, to prepare ourselves and our communities, our countries, and our world to deal with what what we have uh, in terms of availability of natural resources. And I appreciate um, all the work that's gone into your work, Dr. Martinson. And I want to give everybody a chance to look at your website because this is where we, you can go even beyond the book and get access to information that Dr. Martinson is updating all of the time. And his website is www.chrismartinson.com. And Martinson is spelled M-A-R-T-E-N. S-O-N, so chrismartinson.com, check it out. Well, we've been talking about food production and how reliant we are upon fossil fuels and some of the uh, Earth's minerals for our uh, fertilizer to keep our plants uh, growing. But, you know, you can't talk about agriculture without talking about water. And, Chris, I'd like for you to talk about how much water it takes to produce the food we need and why that water supply is currently in jeopardy. Well, this is, a, again, another big, very large, sort of out-of-public-consciousness story. It, it's starting to creep in a little bit. 
Uh, it's certainly part of the conversation if you live in one of the more drought-prone uh, areas, maybe in the southwest or in Saudi Arabia or, or other places where they have to deal with it. And the story goes like this. Um, we've, humans, have, have managed to uh, very cleverly discover that there's water underground in, in these wonderful things called aquifers. And um, in many cases, these aquifers are, are being used in a very responsible way. In other cases, they're being used what we might call irresponsibly in the sense that we're drawing them down at a far faster rate than they can be replenished. And there are an extraordinary number of agricultural areas that are entirely dependent on aquifers that are depleting. And when those aquifers are depleted, they have recharge rates, uh, that, meaning if we had to just stop using them and wait for them to refill through natural processes, they can range anywhere from a few hundred years to several tens of thousands of years. Uh, meaning that once we've depleted them, they're really not going to be useful to us at any you know, um, useful time frame mm-hmm. coming forward. So, so when we're looking at uh, global food production, we have to ask how much of a, that is really dependent on depleting a, a source of water that uh, really realistically is, might as well be a fossil fuel, meaning you use it and it's gone and that's it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out that a, a surprising amount of our world food production is heavily dependent on exactly that process, there are whole regions in Pakistan, in India, in China, uh, even in parts of the U.S. where this dynamic is in play. And, uh, you know, when we, we hold that information aside and look at what the U.N. is projecting in terms of what we'll need for food production between here and 2050, and they blithely say, well, well, we think it needs to double. Um, <laughs> you know, we need to double food production. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, uh, you know, we're... we're at the tail end of a green revolution where about all of the gains that you can get through increased uh, 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 fertilizer use, in, increased uh, irrigation, those were the main gains. And we've got some other ones with, with you know, breeding and genetics and things like that, but they're very incremental gains. They're not giving us 10% higher yields, 20. These are 1%, 2% sort of uh, gains going forward. So there's a real tension brewing in the, in the uh, food arena, water is one component of that story, and another component is the climate's just been getting wacky. You know, we've had mm-hmm. fires in the Ukraine and floods in, in Queensland, Australia, and, and it's just it's becoming increasingly difficult uh, to get the, the bumper crops we seem to need. And, and in many respects, we are just one failed harvest away from repeating 2007, where we had that global food crisis and riots and panics and rice hoarding at the national level. All of those things arose because we had just a tiny gap a tiny mismatch between what the world wanted and what the world had. Um, and so in this story, there is, there is a, a, a set of things where we might want to say, God, you know, <laughs> again, time for an adult-sized conversation. Look at these risks. Is this really how we want to you know, set ourselves up and, and go forward, or is there another way to do this? Well, and then you couple that with the amount of food that's wasted um, every year um, in America alone, and it, it's it's just a system so out of balance. We're you know let's to recap: we're building over farmland, we're depleting our soil of its nutrients, we're not reliant upon surface water for agriculture entirely. We require, you know, water that's essentially mined out of the ground. It's sucked out of the ground and aquifers that can't replenish themselves quickly. I mean, that's by definition unsustainable. (laughs) And yet, that's the system that we're relying upon to feed an ever-increasing, you know, population of the world. We really need to be addressing this, um, no doubt about it. 
When we talk about the water supply for agriculture being jeopardized, we also have to think about some of the other uses for water and how water shortages could impact our lives. And what a lot of people don't realize, this is something that I've been devoting a lot of time to in my reading lately, and that's the nexus between water and energy and how much, especially clean water, it takes to produce a variety of energy sources. So I'd like for you to talk about that as well, because that's something else that our agriculture and our food system has to compete with, and that's water to create energy. Oh, absolutely. It's a great point. It's another one of those things that's sort of hidden out of view for most people. I, you know, when we, we hear about water and conserving water, I think what immediately springs to mind are those, those posters I had in grade school where they showed you turning off the water in between brushing your teeth, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, quite literally, that, that is but a drop in the bucket in this story. Uh, residential uses for water are actually very low on the list, much, much higher on the list, our agriculture, of course, but also energy production. To, you know, so we have these things called thermal plants, right? Whether we're burning coal or natural gas or uh, nuclear fission, we're, what we're really doing is we're boiling water. Right. And we put it through a steam turbine, and then we have to cool that water back down uh, so we can get it back, and that requires more water. Um, so, so that cooling water t- is part of the thermal plant process. So if we want to have electricity, burning coal, burning uh, natural gas, uh, burning uranium, if we want to look at it that way, we have to have extraordinary amount of water. It's actually one of the largest uses of water right now is to create the electricity that flows into our homes. So even if we said, well, we're just going to all have plug-in hybrid cars uh, or something like that, uh, we'd really have to consider, uh, you know, where are we going to get all the electricity for that from? And, and the conventional answer would be, well, we got a lot of natural gas. We'll build a bunch of natural gas plants. But that has all kinds of implications embedded. One of them is the water story. A second is even that is is uh, bodacious as that resource might be, it will deplete and run out someday too. Mm-hmm. If we really want to get to that sustainable solution, we have to come up with something where you could credibly get a crayon and a napkin out and say, I could see how this could last. Pick a number, 200 years, 1,000 years. I don't know, something that, that fits your definition for sustainable. Almost everything that we are pursuing right now has, historically speaking, an egg timer attached to it. You know, They might last a decade, maybe two decades, maybe five, but it's not... It's really not sustainable much beyond that uh, for whether we're talking about the amount of water we're using or the pace at which we're going through our fossil fuels, soil mm-hmm. depletion, all of these issues. And they're all coming to a head pretty much right now. Most everybody who's listening to this program will be alive during a time that all of this kind of goes down. So this is, this is on our watch. It's, this, is our, this is our interesting moment of history to live through. Mm-hmm. Well, and and I think that what's really interesting to me, too, is that when you look at all these, quote-unquote, silver, silver bullets that we keep hearing about, you know, fracking for natural gas, huge amounts of water. I mean, let's not forget what frack is short for, hydrofracking. There are millions of gallons of water involved in that. The tar sands uh, in Canada, that's a very water-intensive process as well. And one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is that once the water is used for for those processes, it, the water's no good. I mean, they're storing water, uh, you know, that's been contaminated for tar sand use. Um, the the water that is being used to frack is full of chemicals once it's extracted, and they're putting it into injection wells. Heaven knows, you know, what's gonna what it's gonna take with our aquifers and and whatever natural processes to extract the chemicals that are used in fracking to finally maybe get some useful purpose out of that water again. I mean, that just seems to be a really hidden 
part of the story to these newfangled ways of getting energy that we need so badly. Um, you know, water shortages alone could cause such a disruption in the amount of energy that we have at our disposal. But beyond that, we also have physical limits to the amount of the fuels that we use to create energy. So, Chris, let's start with coal because a lot of people think that we've got generations and just, you know, scads of coal power left. But, you know, from your book, what is the reality on coal? Well, uh, George W. Bush once famously misstated that we have 250 million years of coal left. Um, he was shooting for the number 250 which itself is, is uh, absolutely incorrect uh, because uh, that was taking uh, a number where, you know, you imagine all the coal we might ever discover, no matter how deep, how remote, how uneconomic, and, and, and then divide that by current rates of consumption, and, and you come up with a fairly big number. But the truth is that coal is a little more complicated than that. It comes in uh, four basic grades from excellent to really poor. Uh, the excellent stuff is all gone. That, that's this anthracite, it's beautiful, hard black hole. It's used for uh, uh, metallurgy and um, you know, making steel and things like that. And then next is this stuff called bituminous, which is a grade down. It's got slightly less energy in it, um, but it's still a very good grade. And then there's a grade below that called sub-bituminous, and uh, that's a little bit worse down the scale, less energy involved in that, meaning if I dug a ton of anthracite hard black hole up and a ton of subbituminous burned them both and said how much energy came out of that you get a lot less out of the subbituminous and then what we turns out we have a lot of remaining left over is this worser worser grade stuff called lignite which is just awful it's it's called brown coal cuz it's not all the way black it's got not a lot of carbon in it it's got a lot of metals and mercury and sulfur in it typically it's got water in it it's just it's it's junk um relatively speaking and of course a lot less energy in it so the story in coal is that, yes, we've been mining more and more tons of coal out of the ground pretty much continuously for the past 80 years, 2 3% more per year, but we're not getting more energy out of that endeavor anymore. The energy we're getting out of coal has sort of peaked. And um, the reason for that is we're, we're chasing these worse and worse grades. And uh, so coal is still by far you know, the number one way that we produce electricity in this country, and, and, and so we're going to keep burning it for a while. But there's already in our, in our, you know, we can clearly see that there will be a peak in energy that we get back from our coal efforts that's going to be happening, you know, it's, it's certainly went by 2030, 2040. If that sounds far away, I have my personal moment of perspective on this is that if my youngest daughter, who's 11, dies at the same age that my grandfather did, she will die in the year 2094. Uh, this is certainly something that within my daughter's time frame, we will be well past peak coal, peak oil, peak natural gas, uh, if, if not you know, much sooner than even that seems really far away, 2094 year. But uh, uh, many of these things are going to be happening within the next few decades. And for whatever complicated sets of reasons, we are already at a plateau of energy that we're getting back from coal. Forget about how many tons. How much energy are we getting out of those efforts? And that's already stagnated. Well, and talk about, spend just a little bit of time talking about that concept of net energy, because I think that's what's, you know, blatantly missing from all the commercials that we see in between cable news, you know, programs about America's natural gas, America's coal. Nobody's talking about, you know, 
the net energy that we're getting from those from those substances. So talk about that and help our listeners understand the concept of net energy. I'd be glad to because this is the most important concept that's not being talked about regularly and, and it's just absolutely vital. So for the moment, just forget about whether it makes economic sense to, to drill and frack a natural gas well. You know, can we get our money back from that investment? Just forget the money. What we care about as a society is that we have energy coming back from the energy we had to use to go and get energy. So let's make it very simple. I have so much energy in my body, and I'm a potato farmer, and I grow up, go out and I expend 1,000 calories planting and harvesting potatoes. Now, if I only get 1,000 calories back from that, I have zero left over to share with my family or to trade with. or to do. There's no surplus in that story. I have to save those 1,000 calories of potatoes to go out and do that again next year. What we want from our efforts is to plant a thousand, use a thousand calories to plant our potatoes and get 10,000 back. And then we have 9,000 surplus and then we do things with it. And it's that surplus that we run our society on. So once upon a time, oil folks were going out and drilling. And for every barrel of oil they used to go and find and produce oil, they would get a hundred back. And that meant that society had 99 barrels to live on and do whatever we wanted to do with that and, and uh, create these enormously wonderful, complex uh, societies and cultures and economic models that we all live in. Well, in this story, we're finding out that uh, the energy that we're getting back on our energy investments, the energy return on energy invested, has been declining. So here's an example. Lots, and it's in the paper. Oh, there's so much oil in the Bakken shales. You know, it's up in North Dakota, and, and uh, they're, they're up to 500,000 barrels per day in production. And this is wonderful. It's, it's an incredible technological achievement. If you haven't seen what, what these people can do drilling, it's an extraordinary display of, of uh, technology and, and skill and wisdom. And it's not even remotely comparable to what we were doing just 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So in these wells, to describe one of these wells now, uh, in the old days, we would punch a hole into something like, oh, I don't know, the Spindletop Formation, uh, which, you know, big giant oil field, or Prudhoe Bay. You drill down, I don't know, 1,000 feet, maybe 2,000, st- single straight well hole, and you would get a well that would produce 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 barrels per day um, in some of the more extreme wells. And today, they drill down 10,000 feet, in the Balkan play, and then turn the drill sideways and continue for another 20,000 feet. So they're drilling these 30,000-foot um, wells, just extraordinary lengths, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they frack them and do all this incredible uh, hard work. And those wells, on average, produce about 150 barrels per day. And it's amazing that we can do that, and it's not even remotely the same thing as before. Uh, you can just imagine that the energy to drill a uh, you know, a, a giant well like that is very different from a, the energy required to drill a much shorter well. You can appreciate that getting 10,000 barrels per day back is very different from getting 150 barrels per day back. And yes, there's a lot of energy in the country right now, but it's not like it used to be. And we're going to have to drill more and more wells at a faster and faster pace to keep the amount of energy coming out in total rising. That's the treadmill we're on right now. As soon as we stop our drilling programs in this country for whatever reasons we run out of leases there's no more else to drill we've you know drilled everywhere we possibly can there's nothing left to do all of a sudden because these new wells deplete so rapidly we'll discover that our our energy coming back will fall off literally like falling off a cliff it'll it'll deplete incredibly rapidly so yes there's a lot of energy there no it's not infinite 
Um, yes, it's incredible that we can get it. No, it won't last forever. Um, what we really should be doing with those energy fines is we should say, listen, if we've got, say, I'm making a number up here, 20 years of uh, a window of 20 more years of, of, of abundant energy resources, but then it kind of really begins to peter out and maybe fall off a cliff, we should be asking ourselves, where do we want to be in 20 years? And, okay, if it looks exactly like today, make no changes, but if it's different, if we want to reconfigure our infrastructure in any way, you know, how we organize where we live, work, and play, uh, different modes of transportation, uh, maybe, I don't know, more trains and barges or something, if any of those things occur to us as things we'd want to do that require a big infrastructure change, well, we should really be using the energy we have to do that. That, that would be a really wise use of that energy at this point. Um, yeah, unwise use would be, well, we'll just keep doing what we do. We'll use that energy to maintain the status quo, trusting that when that energy runs out, we'll think of something. We could do that, too. I, I just don't think that would be a very smart thing to do. Well, and it doesn't sound as though there's much on the horizon in terms of replacement technology that has any hope of replacing the, the net energy we once enjoyed. You know, and you've spent a lot of time in the book demonstrating that our world economic model, and we didn't get a chance to talk about this much on this program, depends on steady growth and that that economic growth has a direct correlation to energy consumption. And yet we've just been discussing the boundaries and limits to the amount of energy that we'll have to fuel that growth. Based on your research, Chris, what do you anticipate will happen to the world economy when there simply isn't enough energy or net energy to fuel the growth that our system depends upon? Well, we're already in the early part of that story. And uh, the prediction, which I made years ago, it would be this. Once you you begin to starve a complex uh, growth-dependent economy for energy, you will discover that growth stops. And... It'll, it, it just, you, we won't be able to grow. We won't be able to grow earnings. We won't be able to grow jobs. We'll find it increasingly difficult to, to just how growth used to happen won't be available to us. And so fast forward and we look into what's happened in the past few years. We see that uh, the central banks of the world have printed trillions of dollars, thrown them into the world economy, and it's sputtered and they're confused because it's not working. And it's always worked before. So what could the problem possibly be? Part of the problem is we have a huge debt overhang. Yes, that's part of it. And part of it is the world has never had an economic recovery with oil over $100 a barrel. Inflation adjusted. I mean, you know, on on Mm -hmm. apples to apples terms going back. We've never had a recovery from these levels. Well, why is oil over $100 if, if, uh, you know, on the world market, if uh, the world economy is so weak? Uh, You know, we could blame speculators, but we could also maybe say, is there anything going on with supply and demand? Is, Is, could that be it? And, and that is that is part of the, the answer here is that uh, we the world is starting to price in the uh, insufficiency of quantity of desired grades of oil and is pricing them I think appropriately uh, and and so uh, here we are you know the prediction would be that our monetary masters um, the high priests and priestesses of money all trained in economics, never having to uh, take a single natural science course or a single geology course or a single resources course. They can just take quantitative mathematics and, and get a Ph.D. in, in economics. Um, they don't understand what, why things aren't working because they're just focused in that one E, that economy. They're dumping money in. It's always worked before. It's not working this time. I think we have to back out a little bit, widen our view, and, and understand that it, no longer can we just understand that 1E of the economy, pull levers and expect the same results that we got in the past. Now we have to wrap in this larger part of the story, which says, 
this is a new landscape. Things are going to operate quite differently. My mm-hmm. crystal ball says that uh, the status quo is going to be preserved at all costs because the people who are entrenched in the system have a very strong set of incentives to do that politically, uh, career-wise, all sorts of reasons. And um, that the most likely outcome for this is for the world's central banks and uh, government and taxing authorities. They're just going to keep doing what they do. They'll keep spending, 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 printing, 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 waiting for things to to take off. Things won't take off. And uh, ultimately what we're going to experience is a pretty extraordinary round of inflation, um, which is just a way of saying our monetary systems are going to behave poorly and and, um, uh, probably uh, will sort of Right. We'll experience this inflation, but what's actually happening is our money is becoming less and less worth uh, while because it's there's more money and less stuff, and right. that's that's the equation for inflation. Well, and there's so much that we can be doing about this, and that's why I'd like to have you back on another time, Chris. But in the meantime, folks, if you're looking for an action plan and you want to learn more. Go to Chris's website, www.chrismartinson.com. We're going to be back same time, same place next week with Go Green Radio. So until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.